0: I lost a lot of time, so let's jump now into those, some of those 20 examples in the Urban Master Planning Handbook. We start with, again, one of those uh, projects that many people wouldn't consider to be best practice, right? It's Dolphesend Town in New York, one of the earliest urban renewal projects in the US and specifically in, in, in New York. So Robert Moses has been uh, not only behind uh, you know, the construction of the motorway and parkway system in New York but also um, behind uh, many of those urban renewal um, ones and it's, it's not the, the, the very first one it, but it's the first one to be implemented in a very dense urban context by a private company um, and that was actually the whole political uh, background of, of this endeavor and several expropriation laws had to be changed in order to make this deal attractive enough for a private developer in order to happen right? so actually what the city did here in the lower east side of New York and I'm jumping here directly to the work done by, by the course of this book, Katharina Grön who has drawn you know, those, those diagrams um, also this one here just to quickly identify where we are um, and. She was actually doing the same type of of, uh, analysis drawings for all the 20 examples. So what we can see here is the starting um, situation of the plot. So blue would be private ownership. Red, if there is one, is actually um, public ownership. So the first one is the existing situation. The second one would be the change of ownership. As you can see here, quite radical so a uh, hardcore expropriation demolition done by the city of, of New York about I think 16 plots or even more of, of the Manhattan grid being just torn down, the, even the public ownership of, of the streets taken away, everything gathered given over to a pretty interesting price to MetLife Insurances at that time I think the largest private company in the world and um, so that's why, actually, for a certain amount of time, this was would would be red, but it turned actually into you know private property. So that's why here again you have blue and not red. These are the prescriptions of the master plan. If there is something of the master plan, what I find kind of interesting about this type of urban design is that they can't. At the end of the day, they can't be um, a reasonable division between the urban design and the architecture, right? Because how interesting would it be here just to work on the urban design and to give the work over to the architect and how much freedom would the architect still have so I think that's also something which is quite typical for, for a lot of post-war urbanism is this lack of differentiation of, of architecture and, and urban design which, which I find um, is often uh, problematic so you see here you know, the kind of fake master plan prescriptions and you see again Uh, in this case there's not a lot of difference because of the enormous simplicity of of, of the project and you see the the end result and the fact again that all all of those buildings are in in private ownership. So the the idea of the building was to prove that urban renewal could be done in a city location by a private developer. What the developer had to do in return a very very favorable uh, acquisition price he had to limit the, um, the rents so this is actually an example of affordable housing a lot of that given over with preference to veterans coming back from the war this war was implemented in 46-47 just after, after the war uh, the developer also received um, a tax cap uh, over several decades so the deal was actually to pay taxes only on the real estate values before redevelopment But this area was essentially uh, a slum, or it was considered to be a slum. It means like many owners were not even paying the taxes anymore. right? So it was a very interesting deal for for MetLife insurances. And you can see afterwards, again, repetitive for all the 20 examples, is um, an analysis of the uses. So here again, very simple, because it's residential only. You have some restaurants and shops, on the street border, but it's very limited compared to the development area. Then you have green uh, spaces and pathways. You have transport networks, and you have you know the street network. And um, once again, you know what we should not um, underestimate is you know if you look at these images, a certain quality of the green space, which is also very well maintained, and uh, you know the fact I believe that the um, the, the the coverage the building coverage went down from something like over 80% to 25%. So the change of open space here has been quite drastic and is definitely also something which has to be mentioned as a quality, even though many post-war mass housing examples do show us that you know, just the, the sheer existence of open spaces does not necessarily give us a lot of quality has something to do with the maintenance and how those open spaces have been designed. In that case, at the end of the day, with a certain success. Architecturally, uh, you know, this, those examples are quite, um, those floor plans are quite limited in their originality, but, but they seem to work. I mean, I've been talking to people who live there, and they seem to be fairly fairly happy with, with the results. So again, you have recognized this in the two pre- previous books. We are very repetitive in terms of scale approach and aerial Uh, uh, urban plants and the fact that we are showing as much as possible architectural uh, uh, plants uh, of of, of the interior and here you see a little bit more about the setting let's jump to a project first of all let's jump in history what I should mention here that again the whole structure of the book is uh, is organized according to size so the smallest project I believe actually was one of the London projects was Broadgate Um, and the largest projects are the Beijing CBD and La Défense uh, uh, in in, in the suburbs of Paris and that's some kind of a mid-sized example still a smaller one in the presentation by the way I'm not following necessarily this uh, size uh, structure but we found it interesting to realize that obviously the way we structure a, a, a project has a lot to do with its size much more and for us it had much more interest than to organize the book for example according to chronology so the oldest example in our book would actually be by Graveyard, starting around the 1820s or so even a, a bit before that. Uh, and uh, about half of our projects here are still ongoing uh, um, or, or not, yeah, not completely finished. So most of the examples actually quite recent. But um, you know, we, we 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 thought it would be unwise to give the impression that there's some kind of a linear development about how we plan our cities. I actually do believe that we are coming back towards a slightly more complex way of developing our cities which would probably be closer to Belgravia or to uh, um, let's say the, the Haussmann interventions in Paris rather than what you have seen here in Stuyvesant town right so there is no linear development which I believe again it's, it's a long topic but but you know uh, it, it's quite fundamental to, to understand. So here we are in a famous example of ecological architecture I think Vauban became uh, you know one of the first um, places to visit in Germany but worldwide actually to see early examples of of passive houses and and of ecological architecture and urbanism Uh, the point that I would like to make in, in this example is actually again that there's a very direct relationship between the process and the reason that there is ecological architecture in this example and it's not only the fact that the city wanted to have ecological architecture here somehow as a showcase of this green city Freiburg in Germany so uh, yeah, Freiburg is in southwestern Germany um, a beautiful city and the the background historically of, of this development and that's also where the name comes from it's from the French barracks here the French army which left like the, the British and the American one uh, a German ground after the reunification in the early 1990s and uh, so the, it became ownership of the federal estate and was bought by the city uh, in order to implement um, an urban development uh, project and they organized a competition, an open competition won by uh, A master planners Koloff and Koloff from Stuttgart. You can see here if you compare the competition, the winning competition entry with the the final plan that there have been quite a few changes so essentially the the, the master plan had a certain notion of being an ideas competition and the city afterwards implemented you know the further adjustment to the reality of also uh, the land ownership uh, issues in in, in that area so we start you know this is the the, the plan of the area when it was uh, still used as barracks Uh, so this was in public ownership Afterwards here we can see how the land ownership structure has completely changed. So we, are, we have an example here quite extremely going from large scale to small scale, which is very fundamental for the success of, of, of this development. And only you know some of the green areas and maybe some schools have been kept in public uh, ownership. We see here the master plan prescriptions and we see what has been implemented in reality. So that's essentially kind of a figure ground drawing uh, with Public and private indication uh, um, of, of the final state here, and uh, again, you know, just you know, not to spend too much time for this example and to, to show you more. What, what's really fundamental to understand is that the city made the decision, actually, to sell the land by auction to a fixed price, right? So they knew how much money they had to spend, for example, for the. Uh, for the tram line that the city has built you know, for the preparation of the ground the construction of the streets and once they had a rough estimation they just said okay we have to sell the land for this amount per square meter and we're going to make our decision according to the program so we're not going to sell to the person who offers most but to the person or the developer who is offering the most interesting concept and what they did here is actually they, because it is a green city they thought well we would like to test a new concept which at that time was arising not only in Freiburg but in other places and has been actually become quite fashionable in all of Germany and also in other places of the world. Is actually um, selling, so the preference was given to building groups, so these are um, individuals that team up in order to build a design and build a small-scale multifamily building. And because those people had similar interests, actually they often decided to invest more money in ecological technologies than the average developer could ever have done and again the point that I'm always making here is that the average developer will always try to make marketing with the fact obviously that they are trying to you know to implement the newest technologies but to be fair enough I think there's a certain limitation of what he can do because he cannot necessarily know how much the future apartment condo buyer is actually going (coughs) is willing to invest in these technologies so maybe he's willing to invest 15% more but that's maybe the, the, the maximum that the developer would like to spend more but those people here because they were individuals teaming up and most of them had like a very strongly developed uh, green conscience, they were sometimes going further, so they just said "Okay, for us it's the biggest project of our life and we believe in green technologies so we are just putting a maximum as much as we can afford into the newest technologies and that's actually the, the fascinating example where here the process of making that decision, selling by auction to those people is, is very key in order to achieve the ecological result I'm not saying that something that has to be copied everywhere that we're going to be successful everywhere but it's just interesting to see how those two things relate and it's not only an architectural issue and it's not only an engineering or a technical uh, question so here again, you know, those are some of those um, examples Here, this is one of those building groups and, and some others that you can see here um, so the architecture is, is quite different from from type to type so the building is set up and you know once it's finished essentially the the, the final legal um, status will be the same of a condominium right so every, every, every person which formed uh, uh, was part of the building group uh, at the end of the day will just be the owner of, of his single unit um, so very different uh, funnily enough it's by chance that they are the both are together it's another German example but it's also like the third one in this book funnily enough which is Potsdamer Platz so all of them are closely linked to the reunification, and uh, so again that's an example which started just after 89 in the early 1990s it's in the suburbs of Potsdam so it's not in in West uh, Germany but in uh, former East Germany suburbs of Potsdam and um, a private developer, with the uh, help of the city, was buying up uh, former agricultural land. So I think there were 80 landowners. So I think the city helped in using their preemptive uh, um, purchasing rights. I forgot the, the right word for that. And was giving everything over to this single uh, developer who then again did something similar at the end of the day to Steufelsentown you know built uh, most of it as uh, um, affordable housing affordable multifamily housing and rental housing so actually he did not sell those properties but rents them until today and I think the, the major link here to the reunification at the end of the day is the fact that they were major subsidies for construction and affordable housing after the reunification, first of all, because you know, there was a need for for those houses, but even more so than the need you know, there was a need to have investment as such and to have construction so this project would never have been possible without major subsidies from the state and I think that 's also an important uh, information um, you know, just to you know, to to appreciate this question of multifamily uh, developments in in suburban areas, you know, how much help do you actually need to make them worthwhile. Obviously this has a lot to do with land value, so that's something which maybe works well in the suburbs of London because, you know, people have to pay that much in the center but once you go to other cities and you're trying to implement multifamily housing often it's very difficult to you know to convince the private sector to really do that and here in this case the private sector did it only because of those enormous uh, subsidies and so again you have a certain parallel to Stuyvesant town because in that case uh, even though it wasn't the city center it was profitable only because uh, the city was giving over the land to such interesting conditions. Here, the, the master plan, it wasn't an open competition, it was just the uh, owner who um, invited, I think, seven or eight practices. One of them was Creer and Cole, so Rob Creer and, and Christoph Cole. They won uh, with this, uh, I think, you know, they won with an earlier sketch, but that's essentially what has been implemented. So they afterwards have been chosen in order to. Um, define the urban rules for form-based codes, codes that's how you call it in, in, in the US and each building would be implemented by another practice so it's a quite interesting, very different f- from that point of view from Stuyfus and Town, so you don't have one uh, person trying to play the architect and the urban designer at the same time but actually you have one urban designer being chosen to Uh, define the rules and afterwards I think uh, all of that being implemented by over 30 different practices so there's a certain schizophrenia about this way of of working you still have one single owner so it's very different from Freiburg Vauban where actually the land was sold to different uh, small scale owners so you still have very much a large scale approach but then afterwards you're trying to solve this problem of boredom and repetition through so the fact that you are actually uh, choosing, giving over the, the work to different architectural practices so it's a kind of an artificial way of doing and it's also one of the few examples it's, it's mentioned to be one of the few example, European examples of new urbanism because that's a way of development which is used quite often in, um, in the US and actually my, my university in, in Miami is quite uh, well known to have uh, you know, implemented um, not the university, but but my dean and her office and many other people linked to New Urbanism uh, are well known for having you know developed this, this kind of of, of uh, um, development and design logic, rather design logic by the way than development logic. And here again, you know, I think I explained it already. You can see how you know this has been um, implemented and um, I quite like the project you shouldn't forget again it's affordable housing so I think there was a certain limit of what was possible to be done the quality of the landscaping is quite beautiful again comparing it with a project like Stolfestandown or uh, um, Cartier the project in, in the Parisian banlieue is actually the differentiation not only between the urban designer and the architect, but also the landscape architect, right? So the landscape architect was actually a separate structure, which today uh, is essentially a very normal way of approaching things, but it wasn't necessarily 30 years ago. And you can see here, um, you know, some of the images um, of of the built results. You can see here the, the quality of the courtyards. It's quite beautiful the way you know that the cars are kind of hidden from the green areas and from the public realm it's something which has been quite well done Um, here one of the few larger scale examples where actually SOM had been invited Uh, funnily enough I was surprised to see SOM working in in Kirchsteigfeld close to Potsdam but they also did a project in KPF by the way also Um, both of them not maybe the most successful of of the whole project